Hello, I'm Zara, a self-published author of young adult and new adult fiction. And I'm Kelly, a fantasy writer being held together by threads of optimism. And this is Writish, the podcast by writers for writers, where we discuss craft and hot topics in the writing community. All right. So character first or plot first? I feel like this is a big question that sometimes writers have. And for myself personally, I will imagine a loose plot. And then from there, create the characters afterwards. And sometimes on the rare occasion, I will create the antagonist. Regardless of what people who tell you that multitasking is possible and that we're not focus switching. I would say that the closest thing to multitasking is what happens with me because I get the idea that comes to me is always a character is in a situation and that situation is almost always the first chapter. The character is in a specific situation, which is the inciting incident. And then I kind of just go from there. So I don't picture like, oh, here's a scenario. What if someone was in it aside from my nano project, which is like the exception to this rule. And I think it's because that was just such a, but then very quickly I was like, okay, Romy uh, is my main character and her real name is Rosemary, but like her sister calls her Romy as like a small rebellion against their mom. And the sister didn't know her name immediately, but you know, is going to have a super graceful name that like doesn't really match her kind of combative, rebellious personality, which like irks the mom. I kind of just had everything I needed for the start for someone who doesn't do all the world building in advance, which You know, this isn't a world building episode, but I feel like, you know, very often a premise arises from the world or the world arises from the premise, which is true for me, but it's always later. Whereas the character and the premise come together. I'm sorry, that was very long winded. No, no, that's totally fine. Also, if you missed our last episode where Sarah talked about what she was going to be doing for NaNoWriMo, make sure you check that out. It is on the website and also foreshadowing to future episodes about world building and what we will be doing with that. But um, I feel what you're saying because with some projects like Project D for me, I wasn't even inspired by the main character or wanting to create a main character first. The story for Project D came from my loathing for Zeus and how I wanted to showcase how much of a douchebag he was. Because let's be honest, Disney messed it up. Zeus is not a loving, doting father and husband, okay? I was so opposed to writing retellings because I never thought I would like do it good enough or I thought that they were like a lot of people do them. And uh, I was like, you know what, screw it. I want to do a retelling and I'm going to have a Zeus-inspired character that is actually a douchebag and the bad guy. Of course, now there are some twists and the Zeus-inspired character character isn't the main bad guy. He's still a bad guy and obviously a big douchebag. But my main big bad is someone with more of an unexpected twist. So while I had my antagonist and my plot already kind of created, I did not refine anything about the main character until afterwards. And the main character is a Dionysus-inspired character. So I thought, you know, what better person or an unexpected hero to be the party boy or, you know, stereotyped party boy. (laughs) And also stereotype drunkard, according to some myths. Yeah, I'm actually going to implement that. So 
Um, Touching lightly on the area I live in, alcoholism is pretty heavy and runs through a lot of families, mine included. So I am going to implement that into the story as of an internal conflict for the Dionysus-inspired character. I thought it would be interesting to do that and it would might be a little bit cathartic on my end. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, I know we literally just talked about doing an episode in the future about how much you as the author should put yourself in a character. And I mean, just off the top of my head, the most obvious example and also kind of the cathartic feeling that we talked about in our first episode. I gave, unfortunately for her, the main character in my new adult sci-fi romance trilogy, PTSD. It's not the same as my PTSD. What I've been through is not the type of PTSD that she has because she didn't have my experiences, but we both have nightmares and conflicting feelings about things and then being angry at those conflicted feelings. And it's I feel like people don't talk about the things we just mentioned as own voices, but it is in the spirit of it because who better to write a certain experience than people who have gone through it. Tina, that was something too that I was thinking about with Project Cursebreaker because as you know, I am someone who lives with dissociative identity disorder. I've talked about it on my channel briefly. I've talked about how it's impacted my stories and impacted my life and how it has evolved around my characters. None of my characters directly have my diagnosis. However, there is other qualities that are implemented into the story or implemented into the characters to kind of resemble me as an author living with this. But I I never really thought about doing own voices, A, because I'm a white lady. <laughs> B, my um, character, it's not like my story is driven by an LGBTQ plus plot line, even though I am on that spectrum. My, my story is not driven by that. It's more so mental health driven. And speaking of Cursebreaker, also known as the colorful legacy of Valera Ethelwolf, her character characterization, I should say, came about very differently than my main character for Project D because Alara has grown with every draft and she's changed with every draft, whether it be physical appearance, physical or mental conditions, because at one point in time, she was going to be ill due to me being around my aunt who had chron- like chronic illness and, you know, she was sick with cancer. Um but I changed it to where her mother figure had the illness and not her so much. And I even changed some of her personality traits because I thought at the beginning she was too passive and too much like the story was happening to her and not her being active in the story. And once upon a time ago, her age was actually middle grade age. So that, you know, the story could have been completely different if I would have stuck with that age category. But I feel like it's important that all those changes, you know, take place because it's natural and organic and should take place with each draft. And I feel like sometimes writers stress about making the perfect main character right off the bat. And that's just not how it happens. Your main character will grow 
as your writing grows and as your storytelling abilities grow. And that's okay. Yeah. I mean, I totally agree. I went through the, is my character too passive? And I did make the choice to maybe keep her more passive than I think some writers and definitely some editors would have advised. But she fights back in her own way. And I think that reflects a part of me, like the way I've lived my life up to a certain point. But also when you have God playing God with your life, it's a little bit hard to um, not be the tiniest bit passive. But also with like the age thing, I initially wrote it as squarely young adults. And then as I was writing and revising it from the Belgrave legacy as its own trilogy only about Fawn and Caleb and turning it into a single book called The Belgrave Legacy, uh, which was then followed by two sequel slash companion books uh, about the other characters in the story. It was young adult. And then just by virtue of the fact that I needed my main character, my main female character, I should say, to be more isolated and cut off from her mom's very good and wise influence. So I was like, she, she's got to be away at college, which could be upper young adult, new adult. It's The themes are still kind of more young adult than new adult. So I normally say it's upper young adult, but it gets the point across that like the anti-hero slash the main male protagonist could have done shadier things while being employed by the devil. You know, like I didn't have to whitewash it as much. Um, I'm not graphic or anything because, you know, I I did write it for like a partially young adult audience, but it's things change either because you get to know your characters better as you're writing and you're like, oh, they wouldn't react like that. Or sometimes the story influences it like mine did. Now we've talked about main characters a lot as we are talking about character plot first, but something else that I think comes up frequently is who's more fun to write, villains or your main character? Oh, yeah. I would say it depends. When your villain is the literal devil and you've kind of based it off Ian Summerhalder as Damon Salvatore in The Vampire Diaries and kind of off of Tom Ellis as Lucifer in Lucifer, you kind of have to have some fun. Um, really sexy. <laughs> well, that, but like, I don't play into it that much. The dynamic felt very wrong, although I gotta say that that very dynamic is kind of what drives my new adult sci-fi <laughs> romance trilogy. So clearly I got over some stuff. Um, but like his snark and his complete disregard for authority and his kind of like, I have a lot of power. I'm going to do whatever I want with it. Was just a lot of fun to write for someone who is unfortunately, you know, human. It's kind of just fun to write that type of character who maybe also gives some cathartic release for our not as nice desires that, you know, sometimes intrude in our thoughts. But then, yeah, because we're human. Because we're human. <laughs> but then by contrast, the villain in my new adult sci-fi romance trilogy, he's, he's an alien, but he's also a sexist jerk. But writing him isn't fun for me because I love my main character so much. He is sexist jerk. Yeah. <laughs> 
there's a scene that he's in where he like gets in a few good barbs like that's because how it comes to me but I'm more having fun in that scene if at all because my main characters like give it back to him in some way I'm not like having fun writing these like really like sexist jerk comments that I've had to deal with yes I understand that completely I agree that you know, as writing villains, it can be more fun because you get to push the limits of whatever world you created and the rules that exist in that world and the morals and different things. And you can really dig into what makes them the way that they are if you want. You also get to play with them a little bit more so than you do the main character because I feel like certain readers hold a main character to certain standards of traits that they think are good. And I mean, yes, you can have morally gray main characters. I mean, look at Deadpool, right? Everyone loves Deadpool. He kind of is an anti-hero. He does his own thing, but he also has his own set of rules. Like it doesn't get more, I guess, in the middle than that, but not everyone can write a Deadpool. But I think also he doesn't do bad things or he doesn't do bad things for bad reasons. You know what I mean? Yeah. He does them for good reasons. Yeah. So people can get behind that. Whereas a villain, they might think it's a good reason, but to everyone else like reading the story and the other characters are like, that is an awful reason. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And it's it's more fun to play around with villains like that because I feel like sometimes writers get stuck in the whole, well, they're just bad because they're bad. Okay, well, what made them bad? Not You're not born bad. Something made you that way because there's a whole environment versus nurture thing. Like what drove them to be that way. And I think that too, in contrast to how you would normally write your hero, it's just, it allows you to get more into nitty gritty stuff. Because while your hero may have a tragic backstory, there's still something inside of them that's inherently good. Where with a villain, their inherently good trait got corrupted and what made it corrupt. That's the things I want to know. But sometimes as a writer, whenever I'm creating a backstory for a villain, that's some stuff that the reader may not ever know, but at least I know it. And then that contributes to why the villain is such a good villain. And I'm, I'm thinking like Azula. Oh, yeah. Azula is so complex. And the fact that she's also a victim of Ozai. Yeah. And I think a lot of people overlook that. I know I overlooked that as a child watching it, but as an adult and as a mother looking and rewatching the series, I still feel for Zuko and he is still my favorite character, my first like cartoon boy crush ever. But um, I, I feel for her yeah. and the fact that like you watch her slowly psychologically break down and it just makes her as a villain that much more interesting. And I feel like that was while Aang was probably fun to write, it was also r- probably really fun for those writers to delve into her psychology. Definitely like in the later episodes and there is an almost hour long YouTube video that I watched that goes all into a Zula's psychology and why you shouldn't just diagnose her as one thing or another and how nature and nurture, but mostly nurture actually created her. My favorite line in Wicked, the musical, which is a flip on The Wizard of Oz based on the novel Wicked by Gregory Maguire. Glinda asks, are people born wicked or is wickedness thrust upon us? And then in Once Upon a Time, the villain slash anti-hero kind of depended on what the plot was, which side of the line rumbled. Stiltskin was on, but he would always say evil isn't born, dearie, it's made. And we see that play out with Regina and eventually the Wicked Witch of the West.
quest and just so many characters. And also in X-Men First Class, we see that Xavier and Magneto, they were friends because they were united over the fact that they were mutants, but their ideologies brought them so far apart that they, you know, aligned themselves with different groups that had to fight each other because of their ideologies. But they, you know, Magneto wasn't a villain from the start. He was, you know, a victim of the Holocaust, which is not a spoiler. You find out that in like the first 15 minutes, I think, of the original X-Men film, and then it's rehashed in X-Men First Class. So he's traumatized, obviously. And then he finds a found family only to have that found family attacked. So he becomes militant. And you can disagree with it, but at least you can understand it. Yes. Also, sometimes we were talking about like all these very well-known villains and how much fun it was probably for the writers to write them and why it's fun to get into the villain mind and why it's fun to kind of unravel their psychology and write about them. But some stories like my Project Cursebreaker, it doesn't have a main villain. The villain is the circumstances that are created by the plot. And basically it is something causing the the main character to have something more internal struggling and more internal going on. So in Curse Breaker or The Colorful Legacy of Alara Everwolf, the main thing putting pressure on Alara is with her breaking the curse and that also being her mother's last dying wish. And while many will see a specific character as an antagonist of the story, you kind of see their perspective a little bit better once this character is introduced. And as we were talking earlier, you can understand them and why they are going about the things that they are going and that they're not really a bad, like the bad guy of the story. That's just an example with Cursebreaker though, because obviously there are villains who, yes, you may be able to under like be able to understand why they're doing what they're doing, but they're still a villain. Where with Cursebreaker, it's more so the rumors around this character and the reputation that is preceding this character makes you think that this is the big bad. But in reality, in Cursebreaker, the big bad is the circumstances that the plot creates. Because that's just how the plot came to me. <laughs> I don't know. There's there's just different types of stories where the where the villain isn't always embodied in a character. I think it's also important to talk about the difference between villain and antagonist. They can be the same person, but in my mind, an antagonist is someone whose wants and or actions conflict with the heroes. And a villain is someone who is actively going against what the hero is trying to do. I think that's a very good point. Because you can have an antagonist who wants the same job opportunity as your hero, let's say. And if they're just doing their best, and not sabotaging the hero, then they're an antagonist. But if they're purposely and like repeatedly because it has to last the length of a novel, sabotaging the hero, that would make them a villain. I think that's a good example. I'm also thinking of uh, with Project D, my Zeus-inspired character is a bad guy. He is actively seeking out to fulfill this prophecy that he thinks is about him. And he's actively trying to fulfill it, which is causing chaos and disarray among the other Greek God-inspired characters. But the villain 
of that story is actually behind the scenes, pulling the strings, moving chess pieces where they want them to be. And it's not revealed until the end. I love a twist ending. If there's a way that you can tell upon reading it a second time where you can pick up breadcrumbs, you know, otherwise it's kind of sloppy writing. But I I like the popularity again of a villain not being so obvious. And I feel like Disney has obviously done an amazing job of very obvious villains. And all you have to do is look at the Renaissance films of that, you know, and then we have newer films where a character is introduced by the end of the first act and then is at the end revealed to be a villain. Some with quote unquote justifiable motives, although obviously not condonable motives and others where you're like, you didn't really flush out your villain, but the twist was so good. See, that's what I am excited about with this is that this is the first time I've written a villain in this way because my villains have always been more like a parent, like a very in your face. This is the big bad. And I think by doing it this way, it's going to be challenging me a bit. So I'm curious to see how this draft ends up. I'm also thinking that because of the way I'm preparing for this NaNoWriMo in November with all the prepping I'm doing, that should help. But I agree, like it has to be done right. And, you know, you do a lot of deep work on your villain and you have, you know, backstory for your main characters. And by comparison, I feel like I don't do any. I mean, it works for me. But I guess the question is, is like, how deep do you outline your characters before starting to write the first draft? Well, I normally start with a loose concept and that loose concept is with a loose plot and I just write whatever I can. I brain dump and then basically as the time went, the writing muscle grew and I started giving little descriptions to my characters before writing. So I would do little paragraphs for each character before I wrote and then I was like, well, this isn't working. Let me make a backstory for these characters, even though the reader might not ever see this backstory. It'll be vital for me. And then I was actually watching an Abby Emmons video recently. I'm going to be talking about her lots. <laughs> but um, she was talking about how if you do that, if you have backstory in somewhere in your book, the manuscript, you need to insert a flashback. You just go take from your backstory and insert it. And it makes it seem more realistic. So I almost write very, at least with Project D, this is the first real time disclaimer. I went this far far in depth with plot like planning out and giving backstory and fleshing out where before it was these little snippets uh, that may be a paragraph to two paragraphs long about each character and how it's tied to another character. But I'm curious to see how this more detailed outlining experience of my characters for Project D versus all my other projects, how that fares for me and if it's going to make the draft cleaner and if it's going to make the characters more three-dimensional and the hope is that all this work I'm putting into it will do that because while some people don't need to do that, I feel like I am the writer that needs that story before I write the story, if that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense to me. I think it applies to most writers that I've talked to through AuthorTube or through creative writing classes I've taken. And I get my character, I normally know their relationship with their parent, whether or not it's a single dad, single mom. My young adult dystopian romance will have both parents living but my two already published trilogies only have one so like
like, I know that. And I generally like have a very vague idea of why the other parent isn't there. But I don't really flesh it out unless I'm like, oh, I need to mention this in the story for a reason. And then who are their friends? And how do they interact? When I did, I guess you would call it a flashback. But to me, it didn't feel like a flashback because it was like the present of the novel. And then you flash forward a few years later. And then that becomes the present of the novel. I knew that Fawn was going to be at school with her best friend and her twin brother. And her brother's best friend was her first and only boyfriend before she meets Caleb, who's the main male character of book. And that was important to know because brother's best friend slash ex-boyfriend, but also her friend, it grew out of that, was A, to contrast her relationship with Caleb, how that came purely from passion, basically, and the other one came from friendship turning into something more. And then it's a romance, so things inevitably go wrong for the main couple before they get right again. I wanted her to have someone she could talk to who was more removed from the situation, but still have tension there because it's her ex-boyfriend when I know that I need something to happen, I have a character, but I don't just have a cardboard cutout of the character either. I come up with the history of the relationship in my mind, but I don't necessarily be like, this character was born this year at this time, which makes her this horoscope and this Chinese zodiac. And it explains her traits and why she would react to this situation this way. It's much more by gut feeling. She reacts this way because that's just how she reacts. <laughs> yeah, there's no like right or wrong way to to create a character, obviously. Everyone is different and their brains work in their own unique way. And as you know, we're going to talk about this a lot, but as you go through your writing journey, you will learn what works for you. Now, Sarah, I know like with me, I can picture my character in my head. I can get a very good visual idea of what I want them to be, how I want them to carry themselves. I know that your mind doesn't work like that. So how do you, or how does this affect your character creation? It definitely affects my character creation. Kind of goes back to my pantsing thing, even though like I am more of a plot of words, like I need these events to happen in a story, which we kind of briefly talked about uh, in our last episode. For me, a character's appearance doesn't matter to me until it matters. And an example of that would be my main character in my new adult sci-fi romance. There's a scene actually there are two scenes that kind of influenced what her hair looked like one is she's in a fight and i needed her to whip someone in the face with her ponytail because i've done that before and they said it hurt and i was like great and then i also needed the male main character to compare it to sunlight at one point so i'm like okay She's a blonde. And then also her height is kind of short for a human, but then the aliens are extra tall. So the height difference is very pronounced. Whereas in the Belgrave legacy, Unmoored and Taming the Alpha, I didn't really think about the heights that much because... I was going to say everyone was human, which I guess is true because werewolves and witches and sirens are human enough. But my point is, is that like they were all human enough that in my head I could just be like, oh, they're average. And like the guys are normally a little bit taller, but it does matter unless I have a scene where the female character lifts her chin like in a defiant manner and like stares the guy in the eye. He's also being argumentative. So he's like refusing to dip his head to like make the eye contact easy. But even then, like in my head, I don't see the height. I generally 
generally don't see, you know, like, oh, their nose looks like this and their mouth looks like this. It's more just like, I know that if a character is pissed off, if they cross their arms or they're frowning and does a line appear on their forehead when they frown or does that not happen because it doesn't happen to everyone. But I never see it, which is, I would say strange, but it is called a thing called aphantasia where you can't visually imagine things. I can visualize things very, very well from memory which is great because I can kind of watch any Broadway show that I've ever seen on loop in my own head. But when it comes to my characters, I can't just be like, oh, this is what they look like and this is the space that they're in. I more have to think like, okay, they're in this space and this is what happens in the space. And more likely than not, someone angrily storms out. Is it a big enough space that they can storm out without accidentally brushing past the person they're mad at? And if so, my, you know, the person they're mad at normally like gets in their way. (laughs) But like, if they can't, is it just their shoulders brushing or is it we are in way too close uh, personal space for how angry I feel at you right now? And that would change the rest of the scene and the dynamic and things like that. Now, I know you mentioned like heights and stuff, and that wasn't something that I put a lot of thought into in like for the Adventures of Thimbleton manuscript that I did because it was lore is the human and then the rest are like anthropomorphic animals. So the heights vary and it's very crazy, very kooky. But with Cursebreaker, I had to really be aware of Birdie's height because he's a troll versus Alara who is a human and their dynamic with each other because he's supposed to be acting as her mentor. And uh, it's very hard sometimes to keep reminding myself, okay, I'm giving him human qualities because, you know, to relate to the reader. Yeah, like he's more humanoid, but he's he's still a troll. He's still eight, nine feet tall. He has a tail. He has this big boulder that, you know, could be mistaken like it's for camouflage, but he can also store things in it like a backpack. That's cool. He has glasses. He enjoys reading. He has very big cat-like ears and whiskers. And I had to like think about him very carefully though, because whenever you think troll, you don't think that right off the bat. Yeah, no, definitely not. I think of the Harry Potter troll. I think of the uh, Spiderwick Chronicles. I think of like the underground trolls. I mean, either way, it's different than what your troll is. But spoiler alert for people who have not been to every single one of our live streams. Kelly and I are kind of sh- on the short end of <laughs> the human-female spectrum. And I don't know about you, Kelly, but heights was something I was always made very aware of. And not necessarily in a good way. And so I've always been very cognizant of it when it became an issue, if that makes sense. So kind of like in an argument or something. Or trying to reach anything above a certain height. Something that I think really encapsulates as well is I've been binge watching not only Shadow and Bone, but every Shadow and Bone behind the scenes video I can find on YouTube. And there's a certain scene that happens between Alina Starkov, who is our wonderful heroine, and she's not super tall. And the Darkling, played by Ben Barnes, who is at best a foot or like a head taller than Jesse May Lee. And there's a scene that, uh, where the dynamic changes between them where she's talking to him and he's like sitting on a desk so they're actually at eye level to each other. I don't think it's happened before that point in the show. And then something happens and I'm not going to say that although I'm pretty sure the whole internet has already spoiled it at this point. Anyway, something happens and then he stands 
and towers over her, which completely changes the power dynamic from them being like equals to definitely not equals. Yes. So it's something to pay attention to. I have a character, Matilda. She is a mouse in Adventures in Thimbleton. And uh, she is a very fierce mouse and she is a very small mouse. She is, I believe, second smallest of her five sisters. And in this town, she was adopted by the mayor, who is an alligator, who when standing on his hind legs is about eight feet tall. And he has five little mice daughters. But compared to Lore, Lore, I always make my female characters more my height. Lore, even though she's like five, two, five, three, this mouse standing next to her is like the size of a toddler. But whenever they're like in a conflicting situation, it's Matilda who stands up and is more assertive. And I like to think it's because like she was raised by an alligator. Mm-hmm. But um, I'll be very aware of, okay, I need something here that Matilda can like jump up on to make herself seem bigger in the situation because there are other animals in the storyline such as a wolf, cats, possum that are more quote unquote fearsome than a mouse. So that was that was very fun to write with her character dynamic even though she was so small because I feel like both of us even though we are smaller scaled women (laughs) we are still very outspoken spoken. <laughs> oh, 100%. But it also reminds me of in the behind the scenes for Avengers Age of Ultron, Elizabeth Olsen, who plays Wanda Maximoff and then finally becomes the Scarlet Witch, although at the time Marvel couldn't say that because of legal things with Fox. She is working for Ultron at first and Ultron is played by Kevin Spacey. And in the behind the scenes that I found, he is in a gray onesie with ping pong balls all over it as a lot of motion capture suits are now days and he had a pole attached to his back that went up so much higher than his head and had a neon green tennis ball and that was Ultron's eyeline and Elizabeth Olsen was like there were so many takes where I looked in the wrong place and I looked at Kevin Spacey instead of where Ultron is because it's so unnatural to look at something so much taller than a human. And it's like, I can only imagine. (laughs) The amount of like CGI and stuff that we have the ability to do is amazing. But yeah, with with Matilda, it is a lot of whenever I'm writing her into a scene, I have to be aware of what is in this that she can make herself appear to be bigger if the situation arises. Because Lore is very taken aback by this world because she's the only human there. The rest of humankind is extinct and has been extinct for eons. So everyone around is kind of on edge already around the human. And she's kind of on edge because she thinks this is all hallucination. (laughs) (laughs) So it's Matilda who has to like keep her reined in and keep everybody else like off of her shit. (laughs) Yeah, keep the peace. Mm-hmm. But we've been talking a lot about good like characters, whether they are our own characters or whether they are characters from other series, other works. So let's talk about what we think is necessary for good character creation. I'll go ahead and let you start and then, then I'll go. I 
I think you need to have characters react in ways that A, make sense, even if like you can't articulate a reason. Sometimes if I were that, I would maybe feel that I would maybe do the same thing. Or it could be less articulated where you read that they reacted a certain way and you're like, yeah, that tracks and you don't know why. But those actions need to lead somewhere. And it doesn't necessarily have to be like a hero's arc and it doesn't have to be a redemption arc. Their actions need to lead to them making more decisions and actions that reveal their character more to the reader. And they don't have to be likable either. But to me, a good character arc is someone, is, you know, a fictional someone who, when I see what everything they've done, I'm like, again, I understand. I might not agree. I might, you know, actively disagree if it's, you know, a villain. But it makes sense enough that if they were a real person, even if the circumstances are fantastical and impossible to exist in the real world um, where I could be like, yeah, this person could exist. I think that's good. I think it's like talking about what makes good characters, whether it is a antagonist or villain or your protagonist, even side characters. Good character arcs are important. Now, not all, like I know sometimes character arcs can be a bit messy. And whenever you're first getting into taking your writing seriously, all of this stuff that we're talking about might seem intimidating, but really it is very good to learn about character arcs. And whether it is a positive one that your main character will go through or a negative character arc. Think Loki and the MCU universe and how many people adore him. It's not because he's the one that we, you know, we should be rooting for, but it's because his negative character arc was done in such a way that you want to root for him, even though he's morally gray. So I think really nailing character arcs and the direction you want to take your character and knowing where you want to take them is good for good character creation. So for example, you're going to have to know what this character is fearing and are they going to make fear-based choices or are they going to rise above that fear and make those kind of choices and whether they make the choices based on fear and that they're scared that's going to maybe lead them down a road that is going to take care of the problem temporarily and not permanently and then now they have to keep on trying to think of ways to fix it like the best thing i can think of is my character in project d that is my dionysus character um he's going to be struggling with drinking and he is scared to not drink because of these false memories that were put in his head, essentially. He doesn't want to experience them and he doesn't want to feel the pain that is tied with that. But there's going to be a point in the story where he's going to have to choose to overcome this fear of his and take the positive character arc and understand basically what all is what all is happening that even though those memories hurt and those memories felt real, that they weren't and that he actually has real characters and real people depending on him that need him. So that's just a good example that I can think of off the top of my head. I think going off of that too, like even though probably your most pivotal moments of character development should be at least partially internal where a character makes a decision to be different or be brave or something. You also need to remember that characters don't exist in a vacuum. Your character's interactions with people can either stay the same because everyone like the relationship stays the same or you know, the character grows and realizes like, oh, I'm going to interact differently in this relationship, even if they don't say it outright or consciously think it or realize it. But something that my family has always said is that if you want to know how a person really is, watch how they treat 
restaurant staff. And obviously, I'm not relegating your side characters to necessarily like that low level of film extra necessarily. But you want your character to also be revealed by interact because that's what happens in real life. Yeah, and I think that's a really good that's a really good point to bring up because how your characters also interact with side characters or the mentors or the just the characters that are supposed to be there stepping in and helping them is really vital. So you, I don't want to give too much away for Project D just because I'm excited about it, but there is a character that is aiding my Dionysus-inspired main character and uh, she's a little bit more stern with him but it's because she also has her own motives that you learn about later of why she is pushing him so hard. And whenever that comes to a fold and he fails her basically the first time around, he sees what he caused her to lose and she was the one that was believing in him and trying to really push him to do it. So then he's stuck with the choice of, well, do I continue to do what she was wanting me to do and asking me to do? Or do I just call it quits now because, you know, what's the point? He's also already a very depressed character, if you couldn't tell. <laughs> Poor guy. Haven't even met him. Yeah. He's also loosely based off one of my very close friends. And he's gonna, once I tell him this, he's gonna like love him, be all about it. But I'm like, yeah, but you know, he's gonna go through this really awesome character arc. And then he's gonna be like, mm, Kelly, that's not me. <laughs> I see the potential in my friend. He'll get there one day. All right. So with all that, you know, said, I think this is a good place to wrap up. This has been the Rightish podcast and we'll be back with another episode next week. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at the Rightish podcast without a hyphen and on Kofi at ko-fi.com slash the Rightish podcast again without a hyphen. And be sure to join us for our conversation next week where we talk all about outlining and I am super pumped for it. <laughs> Me too. Bye.